So this is the beginning of the closing ceremony. And the first point is that we take the five precepts. So changing from nine precepts to the five precepts. Um, I think you all are familiar with. Uh, otherwise, it's just the first five precepts. And the third one changes from Abramacharya to Kamesu Michachara to abstain from sexual misconduct. So then, start with the Namotasa. Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambodasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambodasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambodasa Bhutam saranam gachami Dhammam saranam gachami Sangam saranam gachami Dutiyam pi bhutam saranam gachami Dutiyam pi tamam saranam gachami Dutiyam pi sangam saranam gachami Tatiyam pi bhutam saranam gachami Tatiyam pi dhammam saranam gachami Tatiyam pi sangam saranam gachami Panadipata viramani sikapadam samadhyami Adinatana viramani sikapadam samadhyami Kamesu michachara viramani sikapadam samadhyami Mosawada Viramani Sikhapadam Samadhyami Sura Miraya Machapamadatana Viramani Sikhapadam Samadhyami Itanesilan Makafalanyanasa Pachayohotu Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu I don't know how it feels for you, but somehow for me it seems that this retreat 
has gone over in a blink of the eye. We just started and now we are having our closing ceremony. Last night when I was talking about these different women or nuns, I was talking about the transforming power of the Dhamma. And for sure, when we really put the Dhamma, the Buddha's teaching, into practice, when we give ourselves wholeheartedly to the practice, then the Dhamma will bring about changes. Then changes will happen within us. A transformation takes place. So, for these past eight, nine days, you have wholeheartedly practiced the Dhamma and so something has changed in you. Maybe it's not so obvious and you think, all these uh, nine days I have made no progress, (laughs) I didn't get anywhere. Maybe some of you think, "Hmm, maybe I have made a little bit progress or I have had some different or new experiences. Even though you may think you have made no progress or nothing has changed, something has changed, maybe on a more subtle level, which is not so obvious right now. Maybe it's only in the days to come at home that you notice that there has been some change. Maybe your attitude has changed a little bit, the way you react to certain things, the way you look at things or you deal with things. So, if these changes are obvious or not, but surely they have taken place. And for me, it has been like first at the beginning of the retreat, like you, the yogis, the meditators, it was just like a big green field, a field of grass, just plain green. And then, as the retreat started, when you started to practice meditation, when you started to be mindful of rising and falling, or lifting, pushing, dropping, or chewing, 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 so then, already, um, during the first day, I started to notice that in this field of just plain grass, um, little uh, buds started to appear. And then, some of them already, um, a beautiful flower started to open, to blossom. At the beginning, just very few, some here, there. And then, as the days went on, each day, more buds started to grow, grow bigger, and more flowers started 
slowly to blossom and open. And so now, when I look over this green field, it's not so green anymore, but it's a very colorful meadow with many different flowers blossoming, red and yellow and purple and white. A very nice sight. <laughs> So, if you continue with the practice, then more flowers will open until you too. Um, all the possible flowers of wisdom and understanding and compassion and loving kindness uh, have fully developed and are flowering and spreading the beautiful fragrance of the Dhamma. So because there are quite uh, many, uh, a lot of questions to be answered, I go over to start answering these questions of yours. So the first one is, it seems to me that for a person to attain Nibbana, calls for renunciation, therefore be a monk or nun. Is there any hope for us lay people to ever be liberated? When you have listened to the talk last night, the answer will already be answered. <laughs> uh, the question will be answered. Like in the story of Deepama, She herself was a lay people, a lay person. She was not a nun. And like that friend of hers, whom she taught to meditate, being a mother of six children, observing the sucking sensation of her baby at her breast, that friend attained the first stage of enlightenment with even never having been to a meditation retreat or center. So, yes, there is hope for you to attain any stage of enlightenment. There's just a little but. <laughs> you know, in the case of Deepama, her friend, her other family members, daughters, you know, the fact that it seemed such a um, short and painless struggle or effort, um, you know, they must have been endowed with perfection, like the qualities that are needed to gain insight, understanding and um, enlightenment, that these perfections had been quite mature and that it didn't need much more to attain to these uh, different levels. Like at the time of the Buddha where some women, some nuns, also men and monks, just needed a little catalyst and then they penetrated into the Four Noble Truths. 
So this were endowed with highly uh, perfect perfections, quite outstanding examples, and reality shows that this is not so for the majority of people, lay people, so that most people, lay people as well as nuns and monks, need to put in more effort over a longer period of time. But, you know, wherever we are in our spiritual development, we just need to continue to practice, to fulfill these qualities, the perfections that are needed to gain this deep and profound understanding. So wherever we are, we just need to continue on our path, make the next step, the next one, next one, and this will slowly get us there. And sooner or later, we too attain this profound understanding of the Four Noble Truths. Being ordained or being a lay person, of course, there are some advantages to ordain, to be a nun or to be a monk. Because the fact that one chooses to live as a nun or a monk uh, gives, uh, gives a greater opportunity, sometimes more suitable conditions, to wholeheartedly and fully practice one's life, one's energy, to pursue the Noble Eightfold Path. As you know, being lay persons, living at home with family, having go to work or having other social obligations, as good and beneficial you can do in what you're doing in your work or helping uh, as a volunteer somewhere, but still, you know, being out there in the world, having to deal with many issues, with authorities and financial matters and family matters coming up, such things, they are all an impediment to, to one's practice. Even if one takes these obstacles or impediments to include in one's practice, but still, because one has to deal with so much different matters, worldly matters, it's very difficult to bring about that clarity in the mind which is needed to see clearly, to go to deeper and more profound levels of understanding. As long as the mind has to deal with these issues and matters and problems, 
it's very difficult to really let it settle down, make it really um, at ease, calm, peaceful, and that leads to more clarity in the mind in order to see things. So if the mind is always more at the surface where there is still agitation in the mind and thoughts come up and stories and worries, so with this kind of agitated mind, it's difficult to see clearly. So there are advantages to become a nun, to renunciate, but, you know, if your perfections are very mature, then you might attain any stage of enlightenment as a lay person. The next question, if one decides to spend some time on practice, temporary periods, but either faces resistance or objection from loved ones, or causes distress, anxiety, concern to others, should one still go ahead and then bracket even though one has fulfilled responsibilities towards these people. Of course, now, especially nowadays, to pursue a spiritual path is always like going against the stream. It's not what the majority of people do. In German there is a saying and it roughly translates as only dead fish swim with the stream. So those fishes that are alive, yes, they swim or can swim against the stream. So pursuing a spiritual path or going off to a meditation center, to monastery, nunnery, to practice meditation intensively is usually not something valued by the majority of society. And so either people object or uh, don't like it or have bad thoughts about that person. So, you know, we cannot always please to everybody around us. And so, you know, pursue your spiritual path, but yes, make sure that you fulfill all your responsibility, be it towards your family or uh, at work to your boss. But once you have fulfilled all your duties, your responsibilities, you know, then go ahead, go and practice meditation for a month or a couple of months. Because, you know, um, you doing it, not only you will profit from that, but coming out of retreat, again, you know, there will be some change that has happened during that retreat. 
And so when you come out and go back to your family or back to work, then maybe people will notice that there is a positive change in you. And so then maybe there are feelings of resistance or uh, oppression, then they will see it. And maybe next time when you do it, they are more, more supporting of you doing that. The next question, in worldly life, one sometimes a takes liquor in limited amounts, bracket not intoxicated, in social or business functions, or for health reasons, and then b takes drug under medical supervision. So the question is, does this consumption pose a hindrance to progress in practice or in meditation practice and the path? So basically, does taking intoxicants, drinking some liquor or wine or beer, or taking medication that contains alcohol, does it um, pose a hindrance to the progress in one's meditation practice? You know, when we look at the five precepts that we just recited, the first four, abstaining from killing, from stealing, not taken, what is not given, um, sexual misconduct and lying. So, these for action, for actions are unwholesome in any case. So any action of killing is unwholesome. Any action of lying is unwholesome. Any action of committing sexual misconduct is an unwholesome deed. Any action of stealing, taking other properties, what is not freely given to you, is an unwholesome deed. And so as such, you create unwholesome karma, which sooner or later will produce effects, unwholesome effects. With the fifth precept, the abstention from taking intoxicants, it's a bit different. So taking intoxicants, like drinking some alcohol, is not inherently an unwholesome deed. It doesn't uh, produce inherently unwholesome karma. But because alcohol liquor causes um, heedlessness, it, the clarity of your mind is not so clear anymore, the mind becomes a bit dizzy, a bit fuzzy. So then, very easily, any of the other four precepts are also broken. And that's why the fifth precept is also included as the five basic precepts. So, as such, it's not 
a real obstacle to the practice of meditation or walking on the path, but, you know, if after having had a party and you have uh, drank some alcohol and then the next morning, if you get up for your early morning meditation, if you can get up, <laughs> if it's not too big, big of a hangover, um, then you will notice for yourself that the mind is so hazy and so dizzy and very difficult to be mindful and concentrate. So, you know, then you yourself just will have not a very clear and insightful meditation. You know, if you don't go out and drive a car and cause an accident, so then you will not cause much harm to anybody else. From the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, there is a little story that illustrates this subject. In Tibet, at one time, there was a monk meditating up in the mountains in a cave, and that monk was supported by a family. Sometimes the family would go up to the cave and bring some provisions for the monk. The monk was still quite young, quite handsome, and the family had a daughter in her late teens. And so sometimes also the daughter went up to make these offerings to the monk. And it so happened that the daughter fell in love with the monk. And she fell so much in love that very often she wanted to go and see that monk. And finally, she could not resist her desire anymore. And unnoticed by the family, she went up to the cave where the monk was. And so she came up there and then quite plainly told him that she loved him very much and that she wanted to sleep with him. But of course the monk said, no, 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 uh, that's not possible. I'm a monk and uh, I have to keep my precepts. But she said, oh, please, you know, and da, 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 da. But the monk stayed firm and said, no, no. So finally, very disappointed, she left and went back home. After a certain time, again, she could not resist anymore to go up to the monk. And this time she took a goat with her. So when she got up to the cave to the monk, she said, you know, if you don't want to sleep with me, then at least, you know, let's kill this goat and make a nice meal. Again, the monk said, no, it's not possible. I cannot kill. Um, I have to keep my precepts pure. And the young girl again said, oh, please, you know, you know, it's not so bad. You know, anyway, it's just a goat. But the monk said, no, 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 I cannot do that. And um, 
So finally again, very disappointed, she left. The third time, when she could not resist um, to stay, uh, not to see him, she went up and she took a bottle of chung that was local beer made of barley, as the people in Tibet do. And so she told the monk, you know, um, just have a little bit of this chung of this beer. You know, that's not really, uh, it's not very strong alcohol and you know, just let's have a good time together uh, sharing this chung. And the monk said, but no, you know, I also have to keep the precept of, of not drinking any intoxicants, any alcohol. And the young girl again said, but you know, this is not really strong alcohol, you know, and just having a little bit of it, that won't uh, be a big break of a precept, you know. Please, please, please. And so finally she got the monk around. <laughs> and so they were drinking the chung, and then it happened because the monk got so drunk and heedless that he slept with the girl and after they killed the goat and had a big feast. <laughs> the next question, is it of better karma to be born as a male than a female? A female is subject to certain female gender suffering, pains like menstruation, pregnancy, etc. Also, a female human being is generally weaker in physical strength and faces higher risk of personal safety. This can pose a hindrance to the practice of female yogi. Second question, if it is so, can one make aspiration to be born a male in the next human life and how to direct your merits? In the bracket, so far all Buddhas have been born as males. So being born as a female is not a real hindrance or obstacle to become enlightened. And, you know, as we know, the Buddha's teach teaching is actually about suffering and the end of suffering. And in the first noble truth, he states, there is suffering. And Later on, he doesn't say that one should avoid this suffering, that one should get rid of this suffering, that one, the less suffering one had, the faster one would become enlightened. But the Buddha said that one needs to realize, to understand the nature of suffering, that this will lead to the cessation of suffering. So, if female beings are prone to a few more uh, at least physical sufferings, 
then these sufferings, as all kinds of suffering, are not a real obstacle, but with the right attitude, they can be transformed into something to understand, to realize suffering in order to transcend suffering completely. It is true that in the scriptures or the commentaries, I think in the commentaries, it is mentioned that in order to become a Buddha or a Bodhisattva, one has to be born as a male. But we also have to take into consideration that at the time of the Buddha, when he was living in present-day India, at that time the whole society was a highly patriarchal society. And so the teachings had been handed down orally from generation to generation for about four centuries. And as it was handed down in that highly patriarchal society, there may have been some omissions or little changes made by the males in power just to make sure their powerful position was maintained. You know, when I was talking about Deepama yesterday, when Westerners started to seek her as a meditation teacher, um, as I said, they flocked to her little apartment. Apparently one day there was a group of Westerners being with Deepama and they engaged in a discussion just about the fact if in order to become a Buddha one had to be male or if it could could be could happen as a female. So there was a quite a heated debate uh, going on between these Westerners and Deepama was sitting on her bed and just resting, having her eyes closed, resting. And when somebody made this statement, or they came, uh, yes, one definitely needed to be male to become Buddha, Deepama jolted up on her bed and said, I can do anything a man can do. The next question, how will one know if he, she has met his, her spiritual teacher with bracket with right affinity, bracket close, that will guide and help this yogi to progress well and successfully in the practice? Second question, will one be able to realize when he, she has attained sainthood 
for need to be confirmed, informed by the spiritual teacher or an Arya being. So how will one know if one has met one's spiritual teacher to whom one has like affinity or close relationship? Well, if it happens, then you know. <laughs> but the fact is that, you know, to some people it happens, it just happens that they meet one teacher and there is this connection, this affinity to that teacher. And then one knows, then there is no more doubt about it. But sometimes it happens that people are on a spiritual path, are practicing meditation, practicing maybe with different teachers, and it never really happens that they feel this kind of very close connectedness to that teacher. And so they may be practicing for a long time and never sort of find their teacher. This is something that cannot be made. You know, if so far you have never felt this kind of close, heart-to-heart connection with the teacher, don't worry, but just pursue your spiritual path. Maybe later on it will happen, maybe it will never happen in this life, but the important thing is that all the same you continue to practice because, you know, lastly the Buddha said, be an island unto yourself. Or be, take only, take refuge in yourself, in the Dhamma. This is actually your ultimate teacher. And as long as you follow the Dhamma, as you practice it, you cannot go astray. You will be on the right path. But all the same, you know, seek teaching or advice from those teachers you happen to meet. You know, if you have some doubts or questions or difficulties in your practice, still go and approach a teacher to uh, resolve the issue, to get some advice or guidance. And the second question, will one be able to realize when one has attained sainthood, any kind, any level of enlightenment? Because in order to have such an experience of enlightenment, the mind needs to be quite clear and purified, so it's a distinct experience and you will know it. Some people think they might miss it 
But, you know, if mindfulness would not be that good, if there would be gaps or uh, mindless moments, then that kind of mindfulness or practice would not be powerful enough for such an experience to happen. So, you will definitely know it when it happens. A spiritual teacher can give you maybe some indications or give you some practices to to do whereby you can check or verify if it has been a true attainment or if it was not true or maybe just made up by your mind. The next question has three questions. Is compassion similar to metta? The second, are the effects of karma inescapable in all cases? Are they modifiable under certain circumstances? And the third one, if life is an illusion, what is the purpose? Is compassion similar to metta? Yes. Or actually, compassion is a specific aspect of metta. Metta is the general wish for another being to be happy, to be well, to be peaceful, to be healthy, to be free from suffering, whatever that may be. So, it's this benevolent attitude for the other being to be happy and well. Compassion is trying to relieve other people's suffering or feeling sympathetic with other people's suffering. So then, Compassion only can arise in the face of another being's or one's own suffering. So then one is compassionate with the other being who is undergoing some kind of suffering and from that brings the wish to help relieve this kind of suffering. As I said, metta is just a general wish for the other person to be happy, to be well, to be peaceful, regardless. <coughs> person is suffering or happy, regardless of the circumstances of that person, but compassion looks at the suffering or the misery, the trouble of that being and then in response to that uh, tries to relieve that particular suffering. So about the effects of karma, 
Are they inescapable in all cases and are they modifiable under certain circumstances? You know, karma is a very vast and very profound topic and it's one of the topics that the Buddha said do not think too much about karma or you know, try not to solve the matter of karma intellectually otherwise your head will burst, explode. It's one of the things that only a Buddha can fully understand in all its depth or intricacies. Generally speaking, karma, there are different kinds of karma and they give results under different circumstances. One kind of karma gives results in this present existence and if it doesn't give effect in this present existence, then in the next existence that kind of karma would not bear fruit anymore. Another kind of karma uh, gives rise to an effect in the following, in the next existence. Yet another kind of karma gives rise to the second existence after this one. And also from the second existence onward, and another kind of karma that's the so-called defunct karma so if the necessary conditions for a certain karma um, to arrive if these necessary conditions are not present then there will be no effect to explain that there is a famous example from as with the mango seed. So if you take the seed of a mango, which has the potential to grow into another mango tree, so if you put that mango in a dark room on the cement floor, even for a long, long time, nothing will happen. There won't grow a mango tree. But if you take that mango seed and put it into fertile ground, if there is enough moisture water, if there is warmth and sunshine, then within a short time that mango seed will start to sprout and grow into a mango tree. And, you know, the way karma produces an effect, like with karma, we mean all intentional actions of body, speech and mind. So when a karma does produce an effect, that also depends on the circumstances of that person and the, the general um, morality of that person. Again, to give a simile, 
if you take a spoon of salt and put it into a glass of water, stir it, the salt dissolves, so the water will become very salty, it will become undrinkable. But if you take the same amount of salt and put it into the river Ganges, then the water of the river Ganges will not become very salty and you can still drink it. So it is said if an immoral person commits a bad deed, then this person <coughs> will the effect of that bad deed will be another um, painful uh, uh, unwholesome effect for that person. If, however, a, peep, a person who keeps the precept quite well, but for some reason or other commits the same unwholesome deed, maybe stealing something, then that person whose life is more based on the moral conduct, then the effect of that unwholesome deed will not be as strong or make that person so much suffering as the immoral person. If life is an illusion, what is the purpose? The Buddha never said that life is an illusion, that it is only something that we make up. The Buddha clearly stated there are physical processes, there are mental processes, so beings exist, beings they have a life, they exist, but what the Buddha wanted to make clear and to understand us was that there is no permanent or solid entity behind or in or associated to these mental and physical phenomena. So exist beings do exist, but they just exist in a different mode than we usually assume. And so the purpose of this life or existence, as the Buddha said, we are subject to suffering, to unsatisfactoriness, and the purpose, or the best purpose in this life, should be to make use of this precious human life, of having uh, <coughs> the Buddha's teaching available, to put them into practice, in order to become free of suffering in order to attain the cessation of all kinds of suffering. Next question. Can the person you send metta to feel it? Can you send metta to persons who have passed away? Is it okay to send metta your fruit trees 
for the good fruit they bear? Let us go to these meta questions. So, we should clearly understand the purpose of meta practice, of developing loving kindness, thoughts of goodwill and benevolence. The purpose is to develop this attitude, these thoughts of goodwill, loving kindness in ourselves. We need to develop, cultivate and strengthen these wholesome, beneficial thoughts in ourselves so that then finally all our actions of body, speech and mind will be imbued with loving kindness. Then we work for the benefit of others. Then we stop harming others because we do not have any more ill will, resentment or anger towards others. So the purpose of metta is to develop this quality in ourselves. To take another person or the being as the object of meditation is only as a means to do, to develop it in ourselves, to make this quality of unconditioned love uh, strong in ourselves. And therefore, it's also important that we carefully choose the words when we speak about practicing metta. So, sending metta, what sometimes um, is used, is a very misleading word because this implies that something from here, from me, has to go to the other person. Like a letter that I send, I put, I write it, I put it into the post box, and then the next day the person gets the letter and can read it. That's never the purpose of metta. It's really to develop it here in your heart, in your mind. I mentioned the example of the fire. You know, if you have a little fire, it just radiates the heat a little distance. You have to go very close to feel it. But the fire itself, it has no purpose or it does not um, intentionally send out heat. It's just the nature of a fire to be hot, to radiate heat. If there is a big fire, then it's in the nature of that big fire to radiate a lot of heat. And so, if your practice of loving-kindness is really good, if loving-kindness has become really strong and genuine, then according to its strength, it also radiates. And so then people, beings, 
that are near you or further away from you, they will notice something. In the same way, when you are together with a very angry person, you feel the anger. The atmosphere somehow is different around the person who is very angry in a big rage. You know, we say we can feel the vibration or uh, in the atmosphere. So in the same time, if you are in the presence of a person whose heart is quite loving and kind, it also will affect the environment of that person and so you might feel something. Can you send metta to persons who have passed away? It's possible to do that only if you want to um, attain the jhanas with the practice of metta meditation then it is said that the jhana cannot be uh, attained when developing it towards a person who has passed away. But just as a practice of trying to develop this quality in ourselves, uh, it's okay. You can uh, develop it for a person who has passed away. Because you don't know where this person has been reborn, where or in which existence, it's a bit vague. And so, you know, your focus on that being is not so strong. But still you can develop metta, saying, may this person, wherever she or he has been reborn, be happy and well. And then that sending metta to your fruit tree, that has been answered by the first uh, question. If a person intentionally shirks an unpleasant responsibility to go for a retreat, is he, she creating bad karma? Well, if it's a responsibility of you, a duty, something that you need to do, that is part of your job or whatever, you know, then you, you know for yourself <laughs> what you're doing. The next question, when radiate metta to the ten directions, is that the same as just radiate metta to all directions? Um, well, we have to be careful about what we, say, what we mean when we say all directions. So, Sometimes these ten directions are referred to in all directions and then 
it would be more or less the same as in then uh, radiating metta in the ten directions. And as we have done it yesterday, we know you do it one direction after the other. And so then after you have gone through the ten directions, you have gone through all directions. But in an other meaning of the word, like uh, developing metta in all directions, could mean what we did then at the end, trying to combine all the directions, like all around you and above and below. So then it means, you know, like you are the center of the universe, a little ball, and from this ball, metta goes out in all directions, all around you. Which, of course, is a bit more difficult and demanding to do. The next question for metta meditation, the cardinal directions, practice, can we just do it in this way? May all beings in front of me, instead of the eastern direction, be well and happy. May all beings on the right of me, or on the left of me, or behind me, or below me, above me, and all around me, be well and happy. Yes, it can be done, you know, instead of saying in the eastern direction, if that's the direction uh, in front of you, that's basically the same, because what matters in this kind of developing metta is that you direct or incline the mind to this direction, like we call it conventionally eastern direction. But if you face the eastern direction and if it is in front of you, the direction is the same, so it just differs in work. The next question, doing metta for a person. Venerable stated that for the metta to be effective, it has to be done three or four days in a row. Is this in an intensive retreat environment? How does one do it at home while involved in daily living and working conditions? first part of the question, when I stated for the metta to become really effective and powerful and strong, that one needs to do it for three or four days in a row, yes, that was meant as doing it in an intensive retreat environment. But, you know, even three or four days in a row, like the whole day, from the moment you wake up until you fall asleep, even three or four days might not yet be enough. A friend of mine who practiced um, beta meditation at one stage, after having done vipassana meditation also for many, many years, so once 
she did metta meditation under the guidance of Sayadaw Upandita, a famous Burmese meditation master. And actually, Sayadaw Upandita kept this person doing metta for one single person for a whole month. You know, to really, really let it become very powerful, very strong and genuine. You know, after having done it for two weeks, <laughs> can it still be this genuine wish for this particular person to be happy and well? You know, then it really shows it if it's coming from the depths of your heart or if it was just having a nice time with that person and uh, wishing her to, uh, to be happy but you know having to do it another day another day another day can it still be that flow of metta from your heart unconditionally for that person And how does one do it at home? Then you just have to use your own common sense and a bit of imagination and just take situations or circumstances when you practice it. Some meditators have told me that they do it while cleaning the house or apartment, uh, mopping the floor, doing it, may all beings be happy and well. <laughs> you know, you could do it while sitting in a bus, while going to work. May all beings in this bus be happy and well. May they have a good day. May the boss be nice to them. It can be at home, maybe when you're cooking your meal. You know, for everybody who has contributed that this food, the ingredients that you use to cook this meal, may all the beings that have contributed for these ingredients to be here in my hands be happy and well. There are hundreds and thousands of possibilities to practice metta at home in daily life. You know, if you have a regular meditation practice, doing vipassana meditation, <coughs> you might start the sitting with some moments of metta. Like if you sit for 45 minutes, maybe do the first 10 or 15 minutes metta and then switch to vipassana and you know just do it with a person that it is more or less easy to develop metta not that you have to struggle and uh, fall into ill will or anger 
but take a person for whom it's relatively easy to develop thoughts of loving-kindness or do the general metta developing loving-kindness for all living beings the next one Venerable, someone has to practice meditation even though one has done a lot of good deeds. By practicing metta meditation, will there be other beings following us? Um, so doesn't have to practice meditation even though one has done many good deeds. The Noble Eightfold Path can be grouped in three divisions. It's morality, concentration, and wisdom. Or another <coughs> way of dividing the Buddha's teaching is dana, sila, bhavana, which means generosity, morality, meditation. So, to become free from all suffering, to see things as they really are, that needs understanding, insight, which needs to be practiced, which the mind needs to look very clearly at things as they truly are. So one needs to develop these factors, these factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, which are conducive for that insight or understanding to arise. These are the factors of effort, um, concentration, mindfulness, also right understanding and right thought. And this needs to be supported by a pure moral conduct. And very often the Buddha started his talk, especially to those people who were not yet followers of him, he started to talk about the benefits of generosity, dana. So, only doing good deeds is not enough to overcome ignorance. That can only be overcome with understanding, like having right understanding. Next one. Dear Venerable Ariya, thank you for a fruitful retreat. Are the gradients of benefits from sitting meditation sessions of one hour, two hours, three hours, etc.? What matters in the practice of meditation is not so much quantity 
but what matters is quality. So it's not automatically that a three-hour sitting meditation is three times as beneficial as a one-hour meditation sitting. You know, if it was just the length of time that matters, then, you know, for example, um, chickens or hens, a mother hen who is sitting on her eggs movelessly for days and days and days and days. So, you know, they do a lot of sitting, <laughs> but it doesn't seem that many chickens uh, are enlightened. Another question? Um, two parts. When does consciousness of a human begin? And then different options. Is it when the ovum and, sh and sperm are combined? Or when the combined cell is in duplicates? Or when heartbeat begins? Or at birth? And in bracket, as this will then determine abortion at which stage is identified as killing of a living being. And the second part of the question, if out of ignorance or family planning, abortion is done, what will happen to the preborn consciousness? Another very deep <laughs> question. So I try to make it short and to the point. It is said that for a human being to come into existence or the moment new life starts, um, three things are needed. The ovum, the sperm, and consciousness. So when these three uh, are combined, that's the beginning of a new life. So, you know, it happens, yeah, more or less like when the ovum and the sperm uh, come in contact, then when the consciousness comes to that, then the being will develop. If only the ovum and the sperm are combined, but if no consciousness combines them, then these two cells, they will not grow into a being. So, in the case of an abortion, so any abortion is an act of killing a living being. And so what that what happens to this preborn consciousness? Actually it's not preborn, consciousness is already born. The human being has already come into existence. And so in the case of an abortion, 
then because that's the death of that being, then the same happens as at death of a, let's say, a person yeah, that has been born, maybe an old person. And that's also quite complicated, but trying to put it in um, simple terms. As I try to explain you in one of my talks, also consciousness is not a conscious, uh, uh, an unbroken flowing stream of something, but also consciousness is subject to arising and disappearance, like moments of consciousness that come into being in order to pass away, to disappear, and that causes the next moment of consciousness to arise, and then that disappears. And basically, when a person dies, that means the last moment of consciousness has arisen and then passes away, and that's the death of that person. But because there are still conditions, ignorance and craving around, and these conditions give rise to a next moment of consciousness immediately. And so then the next moment of consciousness is considered to be the first moment of consciousness in the new life or rebirth. And so, you know, if it's an old person who dies or if it is a fetus that is aborted and that dies, so then just in the same way there is a last moment of consciousness in that life which ceases and then another moment of consciousness arises and so then a new life begins, a new existence. The next question, do you have any good advice to a yogi who undertakes a long retreat, bracket, say, one month, compared to a short 10-day retreat? Those of you who have done one or maybe several retreats of about 10 days duration, you will come to notice that, you know, during these 10 days, the mind needs time to settle down, to get more concentrated, and then medication goes a bit better, but then there come some obstacles or difficult times, and it's not so good anymore, and maybe then it becomes better again, and then as the meditation deepens, 10 days, the retreat is finished. <laughs> and so if you have done uh, some retreats, then you automatically will feel, I need more, more time in order to go deeper, because it's just a matter of fact that the mind needs time to settle down, to attain deeper states of concentration, of sharper mindfulness. And so, you automatically um, try to organize yourself a longer period for your next retreat. So, 
one month is already much better than ten days. And later on you will come to see that even one month is still quite short. <laughs> and then you aim for maybe two or three months. The next question with the story of Deepama, does it mean that it is all right for us to seek to become a disciple of the teacher because of his or her supernormal power, or more so because of his or her meditation skills? Did Jack Cornfield and the others go to Deepama for her supernormal powers? No, they didn't go to her uh, for her supernormal powers, but because she was uh, a skilled meditation teacher and had herself attained a deep and profound understanding of the Four Noble Truths and uh, having already abandoned some of the defilements completely. So the fact that she that the purification of her mind was in quite an advanced state. The next one some say Vajrayana Buddhism is same as Theravada Buddhism because the basic tenets are the Noble Eightfold Path and the Four Ariya Satcha, the Four Noble Truths. But why do some say Theravada is a more direct path to Nibbana versus Vajrayana method? Vajrayana Buddhism is some is a form of um, Tibetan Buddhism, but actually, be it Tibetan Buddhism, be it Japanese Zen Buddhism, Chinese Buddhism, Chan uh, methods, they are all based on the Four Noble Truths and also the Noble Eightfold Path. But different traditions have developed different methods as means to understand the Four Noble Truths, as means to walk the Noble Eightfold Path. And as we know, we have different dispositions, different inclinations. Some methods work better with us. Some methods don't say very much to us. And the last one, dear Venerable Arya, I know this is outside the Dhamma questions. Can you please tell us something about the country of Ladakh? Is it an independent country? Is Buddhism a prominent religion? How to get there, etc. 
um, Ladakh is not a separate country or not anymore. Nowadays it belongs to India and it's at the very northern tip of India, like in the Indian Himalayas and it borders Tibet. And actually Ladakh is also known as Little Tibet because actually the people there um, are sort of living, practicing Tibetan culture. Also Ladakhi language is like a dialect of the Tibetan language. And so before the state of India came to be, actually Ladakh was a kingdom and they had close relations to Tibet or to the Tibetan different kingdoms and so their religion is Tibetan Buddhism and after the Chinese invasion and occupation of Tibet and the suppression of the Tibetan uh, Tibetan Buddhism actually in Ladakh because it belongs to India so there Tibetan Buddhism is still lived and practiced as it had been for centuries of the main Himalayan range and to get there one can walk there that's how I got there the very first time I walked all the way from Kashmir walked over the mountains in order to go to Ladakh I think the best way to get there how long? I left from near Pahalgam, which is near Srinagar. So it's about a month, one month. <laughs> and you only have to cross several passes of about 5,000 meter height. There are a couple of roads going to Ladakh one from Srinagar, from Kashmir, and one from Manari. Um, but these roads are closed in winter because of the snow on the passes. So only in summer, by mid-June, the roads are open. The fastest, in a way, most convenient way maybe, is to fly to Ladakh. There are daily flights from Delhi to Leh, which is the capital, the uh, main town, and it's a bit more than one hour the flight from Leh, or from Delhi to Leh. It's one of the most spectacular flights you can have because you're flying over the Himalayan range, having all the mountains below you, the glaciers, whatever. Uh, 
you know, if somebody is really interested to go there, come and ask me. Otherwise, <laughs> we spend another <coughs> uh, hour on this topic. So, with this, we are through the questions. And so then, to close this ceremony, there comes the next point, the offering of requisites and Navagama. Oh yes, I forgot this point. I just missed it. Sorry. <laughs> so then, um, let's do the asking for forgiveness. And in order to do it together, maybe I just uh, say part of the sentence and you repeat after me because all of you might have a little a different version of asking for forgiveness. So, if by my actions of body, speech and mind I have done any harm to you intentionally or unintentionally please forgive me Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Mm -hmm. So then the last point is to dedicate and share the merits. Um, maybe just uh, pay attention to the words, what I say, let them sink into your heart, follow them uh, from your heart. Whatever meritorious deeds we have performed during this retreat, the merit, no need to repeat, the merit that we have acquired by doing some voluntary work of cleaning our quarters, cleaning the meditation hall, washing our dishes, the merit that we have acquired from keeping the nine precepts, and the merit that we have acquired by developing loving-kindness, by practicing metta for ourselves and all living beings, the merit that has been created through our practice of Vipassana meditation by trying to come to a deeper and more profound understanding of things as they truly are. May all these merits of ours be a supportive condition to become free from all kinds of suffering, be free from all defilements, and attain to the highest peace and the deepest freedom of the heart to become fully enlightened 
to attain Nibbana and we share all the merits that we have acquired by doing these manifold meritorious deeds. We share them with our next ones, with our family, with our friends and relatives and we share them with our loved ones who have passed away. We share them with all living beings wherever they may be. May all these beings rejoice in our merits and be happy and well. May they also become free from all kinds of sufferings and attain to the highest happiness, Nibbana. Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu. So then we have officially closed the retreat. But that doesn't mean that now our practice of meditation has finished. It must go on. Um, I have brought some little cards from Burma. They have pictures of Buddha, Buddha statues, or some of the famous pagodas in Burma. And I have put them on the table back there. So you may all go and take one or two of these little cards. And looking at it, it will remind you of keep on practicing. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.